The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Act, Moral Hospital, and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Paul, we're back. It's Neff Madness. We're talking about everyone's favorite, iron and anemia, uh, particularly in CKD, with a bunch of returning guests, who we will tell you about in just a second. And Stuart was here with us for part of the episode, then he had to go, but the audience, uh, enjoy him while he's there, because he doesn't, he doesn't <laughs> stay the whole time. Like tears in the rain. <laughs> <laughs> so a reminder to the audience that this and most of our episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health Continuing Education. They can get that at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Paul, before you tell us about our guests, can you remind the audience, what, what do we do on this show? Sure. Happy to, Matt. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. We have just a whole passel of experts uh, to interview today, talking us through Neff Madness and specifically the topic of uh, iron deficiency and CKD. So let me go through this virtual rogues gallery of experts. We will start by telling you about Matt Sparks. Dr. Sparks is an assistant professor of medicine at Duke University and the Durham VA Medical Center. He is the associate program director of the Nephrology Fellowship Program and director of medical student research in the Department of Medicine. He tweets at, at nephro underscore sparks and is the co-creator of Neff Madness as well as the program director of the Nephrology Social Media Collective Internship. Next up, we have one of the script co-writers, the amazing Dr. Pascal Kairala who is a staff nephrologist at the Baylor College of Medicine. Dr. Kairala completed medical school at the American University of Beirut in Lebanon. She did her residency at Duke University Medical Center and completed her fellowship at the Columbia University Medical Center. And lastly, but not leastly, we have our very own uh, Chief of Nephrology, Kidney Boy, Dr. Joel Top, hashtag Chief of Nephrology. He is a clinical nephrologist at St. John's Ascension in Detroit. He is the co-creator of the Neff Journal Club, Neff Madness, and the Freely Filtered Podcast. And he's the recipient of the Robert Naren's Award from the ASN. And it's just much beloved by our audience who are familiar with his excellent work. So without further ado and much more buildup, we're going to have our three experts tell us all about iron deficiency and how to manage it in the setting of chronic kidney disease. Joel, so excited. It's Neff Madness. I think this is at least the third year in a row we did this. Can you remind the audience, what is Neff Madness? How do they get involved? So uh, Neff Madness is a nephrologist take on March Madness. And so instead of basketball teams, we have 32 nephrology concepts from eight different academic regions that are all competing. At ajkdblog.org, you can read scouting reports on each one of these teams and each one of these concepts to bring you up to speed. After you read those, those scouting reports, you can get MOC and CME credit for that. But the most important thing is then to go to nephmadness.com and submit your bracket, just like you would for Marsh Madness. You submit your bracket, pick your winners, and you can and you can win Neff Madness. And you guys always have some cool swag. Bragging rights are really what it's all about, though. Yeah, it's really about it's really about bragging rights and and the and and qu quite honestly, this is the this is the ticket to becoming a, a full professor. If you can win Neff Madness, there's no stopping you. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Yeah, stop, stop with the publish and perish thing. This is the way to go. What about riches? Uh, I mean, that's really what most people want. They don't care about full professor. They want to make the money, and you can really go to Vegas on this. 
I don't that's know if that's true, true there's, but uh, there's there's no wagering on Neff Madness. I don't no think you can get odds. At all. I mean, if if the hagfish wins, I have told everyone that I'm the getting hagfish. the hagfish tattoo. Oh, I love I I feel like that just rigged the contest because who doesn't want to see you with a hagfish tattoo? It's a beautiful creature. We owe everything to the hagfish. <laughs> All right, Stuart, let's get. We've got to stop Matt quickly because he's going to hijack the whole the whole podcast to talk about hagfish. So we got to get on this quick. Yeah, let's get All to right. a case, Stuart. Okay, so our case, we've got Mr. Tony Stark, spelled with a Q, so it's not to be confused with the intellectual properties of a large corporate conglomerate. He presents to your primary care physician or to his primary care physician, for routine follow-up. He's a 49-year-old gentleman with hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and chronic kidney disease, stage G3B-A2, who takes lisinopril, atorvastatin, and aspirin dutifully. His vitals are 135 over 85, pulse of 80, and a BMI of 32. Otherwise, his examination is unrevealing. His labs include a creatinine of 2.0 that has been stable over the last two years with a calculated eGFR of 38 mLs per minute per CKD epi and an albumin creatinine ratio of 150 milligrams per gram, hemoglobin of 12, and an LDL of 95. So, Pascal, first thing that I'd like to talk about for a patient like Mr. Stark, not of Stark Enterprises, how should we <laughs> think about his CKD in the primary care setting, and what are some things that immediately stick out to you about Mr. Stark? Right. So um, this patient, as you mentioned, he's a CKD stage three. So um, in the primary care setting, I think one thing I always um, want to emphasize is I think once a patient hits that um, stage, that's when you probably want to start talking to them about seeing a nephrologist. That's step one. Step two, in between when you see them and when they need to go see a nephrologist, things that you should be aware of is once that GFR hits below 45, you will really start seeing the complications of anemia and mineral bone disorders. And those are a couple of things you really should be paying attention for when you're um, evaluating these patients. So Mr. Stark has anemia, as you um as we will probably be talking much more about uh, in this podcast, but other things to look at are his calcium, phosphorus, vitamin D, and PTH levels, which at this point should probably be checked once every um, six months to a year. And that's part of their mineral bone disorder evaluation. Rarely do patients start um, having some metabolic acidosis, which is another thing that a primary care physician should be um, really looking out for because that's one of the few things uh, where correcting metabolic acidosis has been shown to improve or delay CKD progression. So I think those are the three main things I would be um, thinking of and probably talking to them about seeing a nephrologist. I know we're going to be talking a lot about anemia, but one of the other regions in Neff Madness is primary care. And one of the things that we talk about there is there are a lot of abnormalities that we see in CKD, and, and, and Pascal did a nice job of laying them out. And metabolic bone disease is a perfect one where we know that there's abnormalities. We know we have medications that can intervene on those abnormalities, but we don't know if those interventions result in any improvement for the patients. And and I know that in my pra in my practice, I'm much more cautious about doing those tests and screening for those things, just because I just don't know what to do with those results. Um, and again, that's going to vary from practitioner to practitioner. I just wanted to to put that out there. I have to give one more thing. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. This is so. What I've been really doing a lot lately is calculating someone's kidney failure risk, and I think this is something that I would like to see done more in primary care 
You can go to a website called kidneyfailurerisk.com. I do like the KDGO heat chart that we were talking about, like putting them in what stage. And so if you put in this individual's parameters, Tony Stark, you get a two-year risk of about 3.4% and a five-year risk of about 10%. And so uh, this is something that when you start doing it, uh, you'll start to recognize, like, you know, puts the patient in, in more context to see, you know, how, how much risk they have to progress to needing dialysis in, in a two-year and a five-year interval. And so I would I would classify both of those as uh, this is a, a moderate to a higher-risk individual mainly because the uh, 10% five-year risk, so it's one in 10 patients that you see with this exact same parameters will be on dialysis in five years or need a kidney transplant. Okay. So we're, we're going to go ahead and talk about, so we get his iron labs back. So his iron is 37, transference 400. So his total saturation, there was TSAT is 9.3% with a ferritin of 150. So we've established that this patient is anemic. So I'm going to ask you, Pascal, just straight up, is this is this patient iron deficient? And what are the ferritin goals in CKD? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he is. And um, I think one nuance is when we're looking at iron deficiency in CKD, we really classify it as either absolute iron deficiency or functional iron deficiency. And so by absolute, we mean that um, an individual really has very reduced or absent iron stores in their bone marrow and um, liver and other organs. So, and that can be due to um, mainly blood loss, occasionally poor iron intake. But basically for those individuals are defined as having absolute iron deficiency if their TSAT is less than 20% or their ferritin is less um, than or equal to 100 nanograms per ml. So the other um, iron deficiency type we talk about a lot in the kidney disease is functional iron deficiency. And that's when people have enough iron stores. So when you stay in their bone marrow, they have enough iron there, but they're just not able to use it. And um, we can talk about a lot of reasons why that may be, but one short answer is inflammation that comes with CKD. And so people are classified as having functional iron deficiency if um, their TSAT is less than or equal to 20% and their ferritin is less than or equal to 500. So here the ferritin goal goes up because um, ferritin is an acute phase reactant and we expect it to go up. And so Mr. Stark falls in that um, definitely his TSAT is low, his ferritin is 150, so very close to the absolute iron deficiency goals, but also probably with some functional iron deficiency as well. Pascal, can I can I point out for the audience, so you, you mentioned... So we're talking about like non-dialysis CKD patients. Our cutoffs are TSAT less than 20 and ferritin less than 100 for absolute iron deficiency, less than or equal to 100. Correct. And then for for our patients who don't have CKD, we typically use a ferritin cutoff of something like less than 30. And so this is higher because there's some sort of chronic inflammation with patients with CKD. And then I know when we talk about patients on dialysis, it's an even higher cutoff as well. Correct. The, the cutoff goes up to 200 in those patients on, on dialysis. Okay. I guess more broadly, I just wanted to ask just how good are these labs at helping us figure out if someone's truly iron deficient or not, especially in chronic kidney disease? You mentioned you know, iron kidney bone marrow aspirin, which I think still has like a 30% error rate in terms of diagnosing someone with yeah. iron deficiency or not. So I'm just wondering from, no, from a I serologic love your question. standpoint, how good are these? Yeah, They're not great. I have to say we 
they probably were a bit arbitrarily chosen. Um, so I, I definitely agree with you. But this is what the KDGO guidelines use. This is what we use to make um, things a bit more clear cut and easier, but definitely a lot of arbitrary um, number, like decisions went into this. Wait, wait, Paul, you said there's a 30% error rate on a bone marrow aspirate? I feel like that's, I read that number somewhere. Maybe I'm making it up. What are they comparing it to? I thought that was the gold standard. Like, <laughs> what, what, what's truth? I think it's like, it's like yeah, yeah. 30% of the times they actually get the bone marrow. Is that what you're saying? Oh, okay. <laughs> oh. Let me, I'll see if I can find this stat while we're talking here. And otherwise, then we can just cut all this out and you know, miss my excellent point that this, these tests are not great. <laughs> <laughs> so, and the one thing I wanted to ask about is in Kodaigo, uh, they mentioned the TSAT less than or equal to 30 and ferritin less than or equal to 500 nanograms per mL. So is, is that more for the functional iron deficient patients who they suggest treating with iron? And we'll, we'll get to that in the future, but because you had mentioned less than 100. Um, you're talking, yeah, less than 100 is for absolute iron deficiency. 500 is for functional iron deficiency. Yeah. Okay. And Stuart, so, I was puzzling over that too. From what from what I read and Pascal, did you come across this too? What I read was that if if the person has a TSAT above 30 and if they have a, a ferritin above 500, they're unlikely to respond to iron therapy, you know, with an increase in hemoglobin or an increased response mm-hmm. to your erythropoid ESAs, your your stimulating agents. And I think that's where they came up with those cutoffs. Correct. Um, Yeah, that's, and we can talk, uh, so this is where like we think the inflammation is too high and where some people um, giving more iron will not help. Yeah. Yeah. So basically we're just trying if the ferritin is over 100 to see if it improves. Okay. Yeah. And and just kind of like an an aside, I just wanted to bring us up somewhere in here that uh, actually anusocytosis is the first hematological change that's seen in iron deficiency. This is actually from a 1976 article in the British Journal of Hematology. This is before you see microcytosis um, or anemia. So if you see that RDW start shooting up, you need to start thinking about iron deficiency as being the cause, or at least one of the causes for anisocytosis. Paul, our audience might remember that just a few weeks ago, we were talking about you need to make some more friends, and and Grammarly was going to help you do that because your emails... You were struggling with a couple of things. Can you remind what was what was that about, Paul? Right. Well, I mean, I, I have a, a fundamental issue with human relationships, but you know, it's it's complicated <laughs> in writing because oftentimes it's hard to communicate tone well in writing, at least for me. And so I, I tend to write too much, and I think it's sometimes hard to differentiate between when I'm being sarcastic, which is a lot of the time, and when I'm not. And so I really struggle with actually being truly sincere in email. And I feel like this is maybe where Grammarly really can help me be a little bit more succinct and sort of help me judge my tone. But it sounds like. You've had some practice using it. Yeah, Matt, tell us. Well, we put out a weekly show. We have weekly show notes. There's tons of email traffic coming into the show's inbox, and I'm at the nexus of many of these things, and Grammarly is making my life a lot easier. I've been using it just to learn where to place commas because, as my wife will tell you, I suck at determining Uh, where a comma should and shouldn't be. But also, one of the things that I love about it is when you use Grammarly, it'll tell you hey, this sentence is a little bit, uh, it's in the passive voice, or this sentence could be worded better. Instead of this wording, consider this wording, and it lets you either accept or dismiss the changes. And the same thing with vocabulary. It says, instead of this word, why not try this word? 
So it's saving me time. It's making me sound smarter. It's making our show notes, uh, you know, appear better. They read better. They have better grammar. Yeah. And instead of us talking about comas, it reminded Matt to put commas in the script. Good job, Matt. (laughs) Did you know, did you guys know that this is actually available on so many different platforms, desktop, browser, plugin, mobile apps, Outlook, Gmail, Twitter, LinkedIn, and so much more. Were you aware of that? I was aware because I've been using it. It just every, you know, it's it's like my friend that just pops up all over the internet and helps me sound better. So great, Matt. What I'm hearing is Grammarly doesn't just correct your mistakes. And so while you're figuring out whether or not you like the Oxford comma and your <laughs> wife is bullying you, Grammarly will tell you what is the best thing to actually communicate what you want. It will help you with your grammar, your punctuation and your style. So do more than just spell check. Say what you really mean with Grammarly Premium. Get 20% off Grammarly Premium by signing up at Grammarly.com slash C-U-R-B. That's curb. Grammarly.com slash curb. That's 20% off at G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash curb. And kick your bad grammar to the curb. And honestly, if I were to see this patient in clinic and I saw a hemoglobin at 12, and if I talked to the patient and they weren't complaining about fatigue or anything... I don't think I'd even order iron studies. I would consider that adequate hemoglobin and, and the KDGO says greater than 10. So I'd be fine with this and move along. And, and I, I recognize that, that iron can help other things, but really from the nephrology standpoint, and the CKD standpoint, we really think of it as a treatment of anemia. And in this guy, hemoglobin of 12, I'd be move along. We got other, we have other things to focus on. Yeah. So, so basically, Joel, you're saying you wouldn't have this information that he has a low T-sat <laughs> and a borderline ferritin. Point yeah, taken. no, that's exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, that was a question I wanted to ask is, does it even matter if this patient is anemic or not? And you're saying if he's asymptomatic that you would just move on at that point. Uh, no, and actually KDGO does say the target hemoglobin for CKD is just greater than 10. So as long as it's, as Joel mentioned, above 10 and they're feeling fine, you don't have to feel compelled to do anything. So that, that brings a good point. Um, I think before we started talking, we mentioned about how once you have anemia, you're already way behind the eight ball. Is this true in CKD or should we be considering to check something when they're at 10 or does it have to to drop to eight? I can't answer that question unless any of you guys can. Anyone have a thought on that? I mean, uh, you see this very often and you're like, okay, at what point should you start to measure iron, iron levels? I personally do check um, at 11 or 12, unlike Joel, because, um, yeah. and I probably won't repeat if it's uh, above 100, but if it's less than 100, um, ferritin is less than 100, TSAT is low, I do give them oral iron just because I don't want them to then, like in a couple of months, come back and it's way lower and I'm hmm. late in the game. What about colonoscopy as well in individuals like this? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I- I, I kind of fall in line with Pascal, but that's probably because I check ferritins on a lot of patients. The cost of ferritin tests is, is pretty cheap. And so, it, or an iron test is pretty cheap and it provides some degree of useful information to say what I need to do right now to prevent complications in the future. And granted, I, I use that for treatment for the other neurohormonal aspects of iron deficiency that we're not going to go way into detail here. But Matt, what what do you do? Yeah, I think I probably err with checking uh, once they get around 10, 11 and not wait until they're just frankly anemic. That's been my practice that I'll say that, you know, I don't know if I have an algorithm for it or anything, but it is curious that, you know, we give patients with CKD a cutoff of 10 
Uh, does that mean you wait until it drops below 10 before you really start to look at the iron parameters, which is something that you might be intervening on? Yeah, okay. it, it kind of brings up the discussion of how you determine what someone's or how are they fatigued, right? Because there, there's going to be a point where, oh, yeah, I, I, I used to be able to run two miles. Now I can only run one mile. Is that, you know, is that a, a good surrogate for it? But ultimately, their lifestyle is going to adjust over time to whatever their energy level is. And it's going to be harder and harder to quantify whether or not they feel fatigued subjectively. Should we mention what the region is in Nef Madness? I feel like we've moved a little, uh, very far and we need to talk about the anemia region. I mean, this is a battle royale against the iron, oral versus IV, and then EPO versus this new kid on the block, HIF stabilizers. And so we have two battles to discuss and we're right now going to hit the iron hard and then we're going to go after EPO and um, HIF stabilizers uh, later on. So that's one thing we need to keep in mind. So we're, we're, ta- we're, getting, ready, we're getting ready to dive into to oral and IV iron. So Pascal, can I ask you, um, since we've been throwing a lot of numbers around, can you tell us, um, so for, I think we can probably all agree that for our patient without CKD, we look for a TSAT below 20%, that keys us in, there's an iron problem. And if their ferritin's less than 30, we say ferritin less than 30, TSAT less than 20 that's absolute iron deficiency. What about for the patient with CKD? What what cutoffs do you use just to make it clear for the audience for absolute iron deficiency? So, right, for them to be diagnosed with absolute iron deficiency, their TSATs would have to be less than or equal to 20%, and their ferritin would have to be less than or equal to 100 um, nanogram per ml. And what about for the, the functional iron deficiency? For the functional iron deficiency, that definition is a TSAT of less than uh, or equal to 20% or a ferritin of less than or equal to 500 nanogram per ml. Got it. All right. So let's move on. And Stuart, what are we talking about next here? Is there another part of the case or are we just going to go talking about iron here? So next part that I have that we're going to talk about, or we can skip over this. This is the whole neurohormonal aspect of iron deficiency. And just a brief aside that iron deficiency isn't it's not just about anemia that there are several different reactions in the body that require iron as a cofactor those are the tetrahydrobiopterin reactions and they lead to things like dopamine norepi epi serotonin and melatonin in the sympathomimetic pathway but also is important cofactor in endothelial nitric oxide synthase which produces nitric oxide in response to exercise and so severe iron deficiency can lead to neurohormonal deficiencies in those specific axes. Right. And I know that's an area of interest for you, right? That the non-anemic symptoms of iron deficiency Correct. and this pathway is the proposed mechanism, why it has such widespread effects, fatigue, and maybe ties in with mood disorders and some of the cognitive stuff in uh, pregnancy. And yeah, there's it's a, it's a deep field. Yeah. It's very- and, I, and I think I think a lot of doctors have found patients that if they're anemic or not, and you give patients iron supplements, and that, to me the most dramatic has been after giving IV iron that the patients come out and they feel tremendously better, and like, yeah. and you'll check the hemoglobin, and it really didn't move that much yet, and you, and you kind of cock your head and say, oh, that's that's kind of it. I'm right. glad, you know, and part of you're thinking, oh, a placebo effect is pretty powerful, but. Here's a physiologic explanation. And I, and I don't think this is an uncommon response. I've seen it a number of times. Yeah. And that's what uh, Dr. Auerbach, uh, Iron Man, as he's known, when we talked to him about IV iron, he said, if I have a young woman come in, hemoglobin 7 from menorrhagia, 
I give her a thousand milligrams IV iron. She feels better before she leaves the office. Her hemoglobin is exactly the same. Uh, Matt and I were just talking before we started about IV iron and heart failure. Matt, do you want to say something since we're talking about all these extra? Yeah, I think it's something that maybe um, I didn't have a really deep appreciation of, but in patients that have uh, heart failure with an ejection fraction less than 50% and anemia with iron deficiency, uh, giving them IV iron, um, uh, decreased uh, rehospitalizations and new hospitalizations uh, for heart failure, which I think uh, this is really uh, interesting and something that we need to consider. All right. So at this point, uh, Pascal, in primary care land, should we even be considering an EPA level with this, pa- with this patient before we start them on treatment or what should we do with this mm-hmm. patient right now? Okay. Never. So my answer to EPA <laughs> levels is always <laughs> never. Um, so, um, and we'll talk more about it, I think, um, later in this, um, in this episode. But I think since this patient has some iron deficiency, um, almost um, absolute, I think uh, it would be worth starting them on an oral iron formulation to help with their, um, just their iron deficiency, basically. And, and which oral form, how, how would you approach oral iron formulation at this yeah. point for this patient? Yeah, good question. So um, before I became a nephrologist, I think the only iron I knew about oral iron was feta sulfate. And um, that's um, the one that's like 325 milligrams for a tablet. We give patients one to three tablets a day, sometimes alternate every other day. But um, I think that's all I knew. But coming to nephrology, I think I learned about a few more newer and much more exciting oral iron formulations. So I think they may be worth considering in the primary care setting as well. So we can talk about them if you'd like. Yeah, I think it would be useful. Maybe as you're mentioning them, I don't know if we have... Stuart, did you happen to look up any prices on these on like GoodRx? Like, do we know if they're affordable at all? No, I didn't do that actually. I'll do that right now. Yeah. So Pascal, which ones are available? Because I I think we were talking about this ahead of time. Ferrous sulfate is the one that most people get put on. So how do you think about this? And have you started using anything else in your practice yet? Yeah, so um, exactly. So ferrous sulfate is considered one of the traditional oral iron formulations, probably one of the oldest, if not the oldest. Um, So the newer ones I'm talking about, the ones we've been using more of in our practice is there's a couple of FDA approved ones. So one is ferric citrate. Um, which goes by the name Orexia, and the other is Ferric Maltol, which goes by the name Ferracru. And the reason I think why nephrologists know about these and not other specialties, uh, for example, ferric citrate was initially approved as a phosphate binder. So it wasn't even developed to be a oral um, iron medication. But then when patients with hyperphosphatemia were given the medicine, we found that their iron levels are actually improving. And so this led to some studies comparing ferric citrate to ferrous sulfate and actually finding that taking ferric citrate, because like ferric citrate, the way it's developed, it does contain more elemental iron. And so taking that led to a more significant increase in um, TSAT and in ferritin concentrations in people with moderate to severe CKD. And the side effect profile was similar, um, which, which with oral formulations is uh, mainly just some um, GI side effects, nausea, constipation, um, 
So um, after that study, I think more and more nephrologists are using um, phenylketonine to treat um, iron deficiency. Um, I just looked. I looked up the price. It looks like you can get a month's supply for only twelve hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, I just saw that too. I, I, yeah. With the coupon. Jeez. With the coupon. Which yeah. one is that? <laughs> that that's that's, that's the ferric citrate. citrate, right? Yeah, that's the one I found too. Price range it, of anywhere uh, for two hundred ten tablets, anywhere from sixty five hundred to eleven thousand dollars. Oh my gosh! The ferrous sulfate actually is a gift when you leave the store. <laughs> <laughs> I think the issue is, so working in primary care, I'm sure this is the same in nephrology. It is oftentimes, if someone has taken iron before, some patients take it and they don't complain about it. And But then there's everyone else that takes it, complains about it, turns their stool black, makes their stomach upset, they get constipated. It is a real uh, issue. And then I've always thought, at least in the past few years, that inflamed patients, patients with CKD, patients with heart failure, rheumatoid arthritis, what have you, they are not going to absorb the oral iron. Pascal, d- does that pan out? Like, you, you know, talking even with this, and are these new formulations any better? Do we know that yet? Yeah, so I think we know that um, these formulations, even in end-stage kidney disease patients who are like our most inflamed patients, they still do work and occasionally can raise hemoglobin as well as IV iron in some cases. So that for ferric um, citrate, I know for um, ferric maltol, which there haven't been, there's been some studies in CKD, but they haven't been published yet, but at least in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. So IBD, it did also increase um, hemoglobin, ferric maltol increased hemoglobin levels pretty considerably. And so, um, and those are patients who are basically inflamed. Um, and so, yeah, we, we do see that these newer formulations are, do, do better than ferrous sulfate and do work in inflamed conditions as well. Wow, that's actually pretty good. I was going to set the the record straight just a bit, okay? And <laughs> oh, okay. It you know, um, oral iron gets a bad rap, and uh, Doctor Watto, um, you know, made those comments, and I think everyone sort of says, "Well, if you take iron, you're going to have black stool, and you're going to be constipated." Bam, end of story. So let's look at a randomized clinical trial and just take a look at that. And I think Neff Madness made me sort of look at the data again. That's what I really like about Neff Madness is sort of you can dive deep on these topics. So there's a clinical trial, which I love. I've heard that they're really good at evidence building. Um, (laughs) And it's called the FIND CKD study. I think it's called. Yes, FIND CKD published in Nephrology Dialysis Transplantation in 2014. Randomized patients to oral iron, 300 patients. And then 150 of a high and low dose or, or IV iron. So it looks at IV versus oral iron. And those patients, they actually had a, a nice increase in hemoglobin uh, and seemed to work. And constipation was only seen in 12% of patients in the ferrous sulfate group. That's shocking. I wonder if it's like a statin myopathy thing where like everybody, everyone thinks they're going to get it. It's a nocebo effect with oral iron because everyone thinks they're going to get it. And the adverse event profile was similar from the IV and in the oral. However, constipation was about 10% higher. So 11% in the oral iron versus about um, 2 to 3%. So what you're saying is the NNC, the number needed to constipate, was 10. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty close. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yep, there you go. That was good, Joel. I think we should just end the show with that joke, Joel. <laughs> Never needed to constipate. But well, it's Joel, still not you... as high as what I thought. I mean, yeah. I thought it would be like 80% or something like that. Yeah. But, Joel, have you been able to get to get any of these other formulations? I, I've seen like ferric glu- ferrous gluconate or ferric gluconate the, as the other one and ferrous sulfate, but I, I don't know the citrate or the maltol. I have not had the occasion to use yet. The only alternative oral iron I have experience with is ferric citrate. And this is just like Pascal said that I was prescribing it as a phosphorus binder. It was covered by insurance. The patient got it. It's a particularly good phosphorus binder, which is always a problem in nephrology. You're trying to find medications that control those high phosphorus for dialysis patients. And I'm going to admit, I I didn't keep a close enough eye on their iron. You know, the data is clear. The the trials have been clear that in dialysis patients, it dramatically reduces iron use and um, epoidin alpha use uh, pretty impressively. Uh, and that to me is a win because I think I my sense is that uh, EPO, especially at high doses, is pretty toxic to these patients. Um, and so it, it really seems a, it's pretty impressive to me. But I, I, I honestly, I didn't keep an eye, eye on their irons. I just want to point out that Joel's talking about patients that are on dialysis and there's currently no FDA-approved medication to lower phosphorus in patients not on dialysis. And in fact, if you give a phosphorus binder to someone with uh, CKD uh, not on dialysis, their phosphorus levels won't change that much because the paracellular uh, transport of phosphorus is still intact. And so uh, I would say that ferric uh, citrate might not have much of an effect in uh, patients that are um, not on dialysis. But I'm still concerned. It's called ferric. Talking about phosphorus. Yeah. yeah. Talking about phos. Yeah. And I'd say this is important because ferric citrate is a phosphorus binder, and that's that's why people want to use it. Um, but I don't, I'm don't. i still kind of curious as to why they never thought it did anything to iron <laughs> when it's called ferric. They should have seen that coming. Citrate. I agree. So there's there's two other uh, non FDA approved oral forms, and Pascal, do you think those are coming anytime soon? Did you want to briefly mention those? Right. So the two are um, liposomal iron and sucrosomal iron. And so, for example, a sucrosomal has like a phospholipid bilayer, which allows it to be better absorbed. At least for sucrosomal, it did as well as IV um, iron and correcting anemia in CKD patients. I have to say, I am not sure why it's not FDA approved yet, but I do hope we have a new option um, on the market soon Yeah, because it sounds like it's good. So this region is oral iron versus IV iron. And is this in either, is this non-dialysis CKD or- Correct. Or on, okay. In all non- comers. It's all comers. All we cover both IV and CKD. orals. Okay. I, I, so it's yeah, all CKD covers with CKD. Okay. Yeah. So let's let's talk about then, you know, when do you start, Pascal, when do you start reaching for IV iron for your patients um, with any type of CKD? Right. So as you mentioned, like if I have the patient who really hates oral iron, does not want to try it again, that's a great patient um, for IV iron therapy. Um, So patient compliance is a big factor in this, patients having side effects or being resistant to oral iron. And then um, 
basically probably the last thing is patients, um, the, the severity of the patient's iron deficiency. Um, so say they come in with a hemoglobin of eight or nine, very iron deficient. I want something that will work faster than oral iron that my go-to is IV iron. Other than that, I usually, if they're like hemoglobin, like Mr. Stark doing okay, I will trial oral iron for one to three months at least. And if things are okay, I'll keep it. If things are looking worse, then that's a reason to also switch to IV iron. Heart failure. Yeah, that's a good reason too. <laughs> I mean, yeah. so the, the fair and confirmed trials only used IV iron for their heart failure endpoints. Um, so is that when you would, you would recheck their iron stores one to three months later too? Correct. Yeah. Okay. And what outcomes, what numbers are you targeting with this? Um, so basically, as I mentioned, so hemoglobin greater than 10, and if the hemoglobin is greater than 10, just getting them to their ferritin of greater than 100. And then really there's um, no need to keep going because you also don't want to get into the problem of um, iron overload. Yeah. And when we were, Joel, you were mentioning before for patients, if they are on dialysis, is that in the realm where we just, as a primary care, maybe we contact the dialysis, you know, they're, they're, they're nephrologists, but we don't, we shouldn't really be mucking around as much as with someone that just has straight CKD. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. If they're on dialysis, they're getting monthly or twice monthly labs done. They're on protocols to monitor their iron levels and to provide ESA. And so the, a lot of that's going to be taken care of. Um, and, and, I, and I would say that in my patients with advanced CKD, once they become anemic, if they have any indication of iron deficiency, I'm reaching for IV iron. It's what I've used uh, for years. It works. Um, and seeing the cost of these new iron, the, new, the data on the oral irons is really impressive. But with these types of prices, uh, it, it's, it, just, it just doesn't seem worth it. You know, again, most of these studies showed equivalency and right. not superiority. Uh-huh. And so yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to reach for the quick therapy. It's kind of surprising how much the like ferric uh, citrate costs. Stunning. Yeah. Um, I think Stuart's Stuart, do you need a second? Yeah. I, my, my daughter's calling me. Um, so I'm going to hand it. this over to, to Matt. Okay. Can I ask a question about the, uh, what about some logistical issues of giving the iron and can you tell us about like, uh, one shot versus With several, the IV formulations. Um, yeah, absolutely. Th- those are just confusing. Yeah. The IV formulations. So those are just kind of confusing. Pascal, do you want to run through that or? Basically, as we have newer oral iron formulations, we also have these newer IV iron formulations that include ferric carboxymaltose, iron isomaltoside, and ferromoxitol. And so those, compared to the traditional IV iron formulations, which include iron sucrose, iron gluconate, and iron dextran, are usually infused within a much shorter uh, period of time. So infusions are usually around 15 to 30 minutes. So again, not taking much of the patient's time as compared to as um, long as one to four hours of infusion time for the traditional IV iron formulations. 
And um, the other benefit is actually like one dose can provide 500 milligrams of iron versus the traditional iron formulations where one dose provided 100 to 200 milligrams of iron and the patient had to keep coming in for uh, iron infusions. So I think um, what Joel is saying makes sense where, yes, it's, uh, it's faster, but also with the newer IV formulations, it's much easier to convince patients to take them. It's a short infusion time, relatively low risk of side effects, and one shot every few months is more than enough. What about cost of the IVs? I have to say I did not look at the costs. And I think it's institution dependent, to be honest, because when I the places where I've worked, the they have something on formulary and you're kind of beholden to that. You're going to be sending them to an infusion center of some sort and uh, and and they iron sucrose seems to be the most affordable, and unfortunately, that's a multi dose. And usually, I'm seeing patients get anywhere from like 100 on the low end to 400 on the high end of that. And so, your your target dose is typically around a thousand milligrams um, for you know if someone's iron deficient. At least if someone's let's say someone has an absolute iron deficiency, usually they're getting a thousand milligrams. Pascal, is that what you mm-hmm. typically shoot for as a treatment treatment dose? That's, um, yeah, that's what we shoot for as well in CKD. Yeah. So with the iron sucrose, it could take them, you know, 10 sessions. It could take them three or three to five sessions. It's, and it's if you're giving them 400 per session, that's like four hours sitting there um, yeah. for that infusion. Oh, I see. So that's probably, that's probably why sometimes I'm seeing them get like the 125 and they get, they get that Correct. a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so it looks like it's for 15 mils of carboxymaltose. It's $1,200. Yeah. I, I guess it might depend. I, I think people are just going to have to price it out locally. Uh, certainly the newer dose, the newer ones that are one dose, a bigger shot, it's less infusions, less time for the patient. So it is relatively patient centered. It's just a matter of, uh, it's just a matter of being able to get it. So Pascal, we talked about some of the concerns with the oral formulations, mainly the GI side effects with the IV iron. I know the older formulations, there was this anaphylaxis, was a and there was testoses involved. That's not really a thing with the newer formulations. But what are there any concerns that you have in your review of these agents? Um, right. I think historically, IV iron has had a bad reputation, especially with like infectious um, concerns and cardiovascular concerns. I think um, these have been overplayed, um, to be honest. But I think one um, major concern with the newer iron formulations, specifically ferric carboxymaltose, is it does cause pretty severe hypophosphatemia by inducing um, kidney phosphate wasting. And some patients can actually develop a hypophosphatemia for several months after administration. Um, And so um, I don't want to be promoting the drug and then patients ending up with severe debilitating hypophosphatemia. So that's just one thing to keep in mind. Yeah. I want to point out, though, that 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 side effect is also dependent on having uh, two beautiful functioning kidneys because that's how it works. So if you're on dialysis, it's not going to cause anything like that. And to to clarify, any functioning kidneys are beautiful. That is true. (laughs) And and the other thing I will note, even though it can cause this, I just want to put put this out there, is the, the heart failure clinical trials using IV iron use this. Um, and even though it might cause phosphate to be low and is a side effect we should be aware of, uh, the signal of harm wasn't evident in that clinical trial. So 
the clinical significance is still hard to interpret. But I think if you're fusing this drug into someone, you should at least be aware of this side effect. Yeah, I was not. I was not aware of it. That's complete news to me. Paul, last time we talked about Green Chef, you were telling the audience how your nutrition had been suffering and you were so thankful for Green Chef because before that, I believe you might have mentioned something about hot garbage uh, when referring to your own diet. I mean, a fair amount of cold garbage too. You know, I spend a lot of my time counseling my patients on how to eat well. And then I, it would be a miracle if I don't have scurvy by the end of pandemic just because <laughs> I've just been treating my body like an amusement park. But then happily, Green Chef came to my rescue and started sending me meal kits and delicious meal kits that are actually USDA certified organic as opposed to the things that we won't discuss that I was um, previously stuffing into my face. So here was a chance where I could enjoy clean ingredients that I could trust that were seasonally sourced for peak freshness. And they also make eating well, easy and affordable with plans of every lifestyle. I know, Matt, I think we both went with the vegan options. And then Stuart, I think you went with a decidedly not vegan option. What have you been making? That's right. Uh, Yeah, I had these wonderful Greek feta burgers. Honestly, they were just amazing. And then I had this uh, harissa spiced chicken, which uh, was really, really good too. In fact, my very picky children picked it apart. Stuart and Paul, I wanted our audience to know that Green Chef has meal plans, Whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, or just looking to eat more of a balanced, healthy lifestyle, they have wonderful meal plans. The last thing that I cooked with my family, which I I had a lot of fun because the kids are at the age now where they can actually help cook, cut up some of the vegetables. We had the plant-based protein flautas, and those were just really good. We tore through a giant box of those. Paul, I, I think you had those as well. What did you think? I, I thought they were delicious, and I, I probably enjoyed even more having them without children around me. So I feel like that worked out well for, for me and my family. So go to greenchef.com slash 90curb and use code 90curb to get $90 off, including free shipping. That is greenchef.com slash 90curb and use the code 90curb to get $90 off, including free shipping. That's right. So kick your hot garbage to the curb and go with Green Chef for amazing meal choices. Okay, so I think that about wraps up the PO and IV iron, and we'll vote in a little bit here, but let's let's take it home with this. So we've treated our patient initially uh, with, for their iron deficiency. We tried some oral iron, uh, didn't go that well. We gave some IV iron, patient did okay. Now back to CS, the creatinine has increased over the past few years. It's now 2.8 up from 2, and his hemoglobin has slowly declined from 12 down to 9.5, despite his transfer and saturation is 30% and his ferritin is 600. So that's greater than the 30% and 500 cutoffs, uh, you know, in the KDGO guidelines. So by them, I guess this patient, Pascal, correct me if I'm wrong, this patient's iron replete. What would you do at this point for this patient's anemia? Right. So you are correct. Um, so nine is um, definitely worse anemia than he started off with. And um, we know that we usually want to target somewhere closer to 10 um, to improve their um, anemia associated symptoms. And so this would be a time to start considering um, erythropoietin or um, uh, erythropoietin stimulating agents um, to improve his anemia. Paul, do these... Yeah, and I do, think... Oh. And I think this is a good, this is again, you know, my, you know, a hemoglobin of nine is below the target, 
but I definitely want to talk to patients and find out, are they having symptoms? Because we're about to introduce a drug that definitely has real side effects, has signals for increased cardiovascular disease, has signals for malignancy. And if the patient is feeling fatigue or having trouble, I think those, that's a good discussion to have and they may have problems. But I'll tell you what, I talk to a lot of people with hemoglobins of nine and they're fine. And I'm, and, and I just, you know, this is not a drug that, that we have proven benefit from. It's, well, it's a proven to reduce the need for transfusions. And in my book, nine's pretty far from a transfusion. We're not, we're not knocking on that door at that point. Right. So, and nine and a half is like yeah. lab error within 10, like you're, yeah. you're within kissing distance of. Yeah. I mean, it's like okay. when it's like a, uh, I mean, not that I do this, but it's like speed limit. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. One thing That's I want to say perfect. is <laughs> there is a, um, I just want to, just might be for the earlier, but the, I, I finally, I came up with a good joke. Uh, and okay. um, I'm sorry, we don't do those in this, in this type of show. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, um, you know, Tony bad Starks, jokes only here. Yeah. Uh, Tony Stark's daughter. Um, uh, her name is uh, Annie Cytosis. And um, <laughs> I just had to say that. <laughs> Uh, but she's not in the case. You just wanted to let the audience know. <laughs> just wanted we're to just, let everyone know. This is a just new thing we're going to be trying in the show, know. adding backstory, uh, a rich backstory <laughs> to our characters. <laughs> she's at the. Yeah. She's actually at the appointment. Uh, oh, God, it's important. Uh, I like oh. that, Matt. Thank you. <laughs> So, Rich Joel, actually, story. Joel, you kind of anticipated because I was about to throw a question to Paul. Paul, I, I don't know about you. Do you feel comfortable ordering the ESA yourself? And uh, and and do you do you know like do you think about that? I, I mean, it's not something that I do routinely. No, I certainly at this stage, this is. I mean, I, I might check the EPO level, but this is someone who I at this point would certainly have shunted off to nephrology and asked for their help in terms of sort of managing their their iron stores and, and trying to get their hemoglobin where it needs to be. Like this is not something I'd be trying to do independently. Yeah, and I, why would you check their EPO levels? It's yeah, that's a great question. Proof of concept more than anything else. You're right; it's not going to change management all that much at all. Because so, you've already probably cracked the case with the labs that you already have in the clinical gestalt, but it just. It's always nice to be smug and feel right about something at least one time in my life. So I think checking the <laughs> level is a good way to do that. Okay, I was curious. Thank uh, you. I wanted to point out, um, and this is, I think, an important thing. And Joel just hinted on, like, this is really important um, to recognize that there are significant side effects. And, you know, for our clinic, anyone who is, we're even contemplating putting on erythropoietin, we have a list of those individuals. We have one of our extenders are the one that administering it and they can keep in track of it. And so this is a, it's really a strict protocol for how we manage it. And we don't just use it indiscriminately. This is our CKD population. And isn't uncontrolled hypertension a relative contraindication? Am I, it is. Okay. Yeah, you're right. For you're sure. Right. Yeah. So, so what we're talking about here, this is a patient with now advanced CKD, probably CKD four the the KDGO guidelines, which we've quoted a bunch of times here, they pretty much want you to get the hemoglobin above 10. And this person's at 9.5. And Joel's point was, because these agents are not without risk, and what these agents do is reduce the need for transfusion, if this patient doesn't have symptoms, and they're 9.5, and your goal is 10, you know, it's, you're like a lab error away from, uh, and so it might not be worth it. Right. I actually yeah, thought it was I, nine, um, which I probably would have started, but uh, I, we we all have different ways of practicing with this. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and, and what, and part, part of this is I'm still, I still have the scars from, uh, there was a period in the early 2000s when we were very aggressively raising hemoglobins to levels of 13. And those, that completely backfired. And this was a real, like for me, it was a, a real learning experience. And I, you know, it was kind of one of those first hands. I'm like, I don't trust observational data. Now I want to see interventional data because I was fooled by all of it. And I, you know, I was a young doctor back then and it w- it really scarred me because I, I, I am certain that the way I took care of patients harmed patients. And, uh, and it was really intimidating. It's, 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 it's really informed a lot of how I think about medicine and uh, you can, you know, we covered this in Neph Madness a few years ago. We had a section, a whole region called Missteps in Nephrology. And one of them was normalization of hemoglobin. And it, it, we had study after study that was giving us signals that maybe we shouldn't do this, maybe we shouldn't do it. And the it was so seductive to try to fix people's hearts and reduce cardiovascular disease by fixing this anemia that, you know, the theory just sounds great. Of course, that would make sense, right? Why would you want to have patients leave patients with anemia? No wonder they get LVH and no wonder they have all this cardiovascular mortality. And at least with the tools that were available then, and this may change with the tools that we're developing now, it was a big mistake and we harmed people. So speaking of new exciting tools and potential risk because of widespread effects. This new, I had not heard of this class of drugs before. So there's these new HIF agents. So Pascal, can you tell people what is this hypoxia inducible factor and what, what are these, what are these new drugs targeting? How do they work? Yeah. So these are like a big, exciting development in nephrology. So these hypoxia inducible factor, um, drugs or HIFs. Um, so basically HIF is present in nearly every tissue and it's composed of two subunits. So we have the HIF alpha and the HIF beta and HIF alpha is regulated by oxygen tension. And so basically HIF alpha, HIF beta will combine and together they will um, really result in the activation of probably over 4,000 genes. And those are only the ones we know of. So you can imagine like how um, widespread their effects are. And so under normal oxygen conditions, however, this um, enzyme called prolyl hydroxylase degrades HIF-alpha and therefore HIF-alpha and HIF-beta cannot um, combine or cannot uh, dimerize and cannot activate those genes. And so these drugs are basically built on the concept of inhibiting the prolyl hydroxylase. And that's why they're called HIF-PHIs, so hypoxia-inducible factor prolyl hydroxylase inhibitors meaning um, they keep the alpha, HIF alpha and HIF beta dimerized and keep all these genes activated. And why is this important in CKD? Because a large number of these activated genes are actually having to do with EPO, EPO receptors, um, the various proteins that um, have to do with iron handling, including transferrin, transferrin receptor. So you can imagine if HIF is always activated, then you have higher EPO levels, better iron handling, and higher hemoglobin levels. Yeah, it it kind of reminds me if people know how the DPP4 inhibitors work, 
you know, they they keep your endogenous GLP-1 around longer so it can keep acting. This seems like a similar mechanism where this, you know, it blocks this prolyl hydroxylase en- enzyme so the hypoxia inducible factors can go around and they're turning on all these genes. But some of it sounded a little bit scary, Paul, right? <laughs> this feels like malignancy just waiting to happen. Yeah, it's like... It sounds terrifying in the face of it, maybe... But I, I, I didn't understand half what you said, so I may have misunderstood. Did I see angiogenesis? Yeah. Let me give my take on this, okay? So <laughs> one of the, the greatest uh, cyclists to ever uh, roam the planet was uh, a man named Lance Armstrong. I've heard of him. Seven-time in a row Tour de France <laughs> champion. And, um, and one of the things that he did was to take EPO. We know that, right? Uh, and that's not a secret. We know that, that that happened. But one of the things that cyclists do to train is to go and move to the mountains before a big race. Okay. And why would you want to do that? Well, what happens is you get hypoxic. And then you basically stimulate this pathway to, to produce EPO. And so basically, this is a way to endogenously boost your EPO so that when you come out of the mountains, you can really go fast. It's mountain living in a pill. <laughs> exactly. So this is why I would tell people that this basically HIF PHIs or, or HIF stabilizer tricks your kidney into being hypoxic, making EPO and all the other things that it needs. However, I will agree with Paul. This is a little scary. 4,000 genes. Who knows what you're doing with them all? Uh, I like the I like the human body to do things normally, but this is trying to do is trick that into thinking that that you've gone to the mountains and and you're training for the Tour de France. So that's that's how I look at this, and um, and that's how I kind of remember what what their effects are. Yeah, there was a, there was some data a number of years ago that looked at dialysis survival by zip code, and what they found is that zip codes at higher altitudes had the best dialysis survival. And they also found that they took the least amount of EPO. Presumably, these patients had endogenous HIF being activated all the time because they were at high altitudes. But again, this is all suggestive data. Pascal, can we reassure them? Do we have any long-term data on these drugs? Uh, No. Well, we have one-year data, right? We have one-year data. We have one. Yeah, I wouldn't call that very long-term data. The one-year data- Fair fair answer. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing to say, to say, these are not FDA approved, okay? These are, are right now yes. uh, in the pipeline to be approved potentially, uh, and they're, they're, it's going to be a little while before, before we get them. So, uh, Pascal, right. what does the data show so far that we know? Right. So far, so these drugs, you're going to hear the names and with STAT, so Roxadustat, Vadadustat. Um, those are some of these drugs. And so um, at least a couple of trials, um, at least a couple have looked at Roxadostat as compared um, in patients uh, with CKD as compared to placebo and found that they actually do increase hemoglobin levels by up to almost um, two grams per deciliters. And, and I want to, I just want to interrupt for just a second, Pascal, because the fact that they did a placebo controlled trial is really unique. And it's one of the steps that was skipped when EPO was introduced. You know, you got to remember the situation when EPO was introduced in 1987, 
you know, dialysis patients were running around with hemoglobins of four and five. There was no, no one was doing a placebo trial. Everybody was getting drugs and because the transfusion requirement was just massive and it, it transformed dialysis overnight. It's one of the more remarkable, you know, revolutions in medicine is the introduction of this drug. And there's almost no placebo controlled trials for EPO because of that. And it wasn't until, you know, uh, the 20, the 21st century when we were looking at treating people to normalize the hemoglobin, like I was mentioned a little while ago, that we did get those placebo controlled trials. And that's when we all of a sudden realized how dangerous this drug, these drugs could be. And the fact that right now, even before these drugs are introduced, we have that placebo controlled data and it looks safe is really important. Sorry, Pascal. Oh, no. Thank you for that. Um, so I think with these, uh, like, for example, with Roxadostat, um, as I mentioned, so improved hemoglobin, less transfusion requirements. The nice thing that we've seen with these drugs is that they actually work well, even in inflamed conditions. So patients who have high CRP improve as well as those who have lower CRPs. And um, looking at hepcidin levels in the trials, these drugs seem to improve that. Um, so somehow they work on Im- improving that inflammatory component um, that is present in um, CKD. However, I have to say one of the big trials that was presented at our big uh, nephrology meeting last year, looking at Vedadustad versus Darby Poetin Alpha, did find that um, even though Vedadustad did achieve um, good hemoglobin levels, all that, but actually MACE um, was actually worse in the Vedadustad group. So that brings us back and, to and, the and can you Can you tell us what MACE is? Um, yeah, sorry. So that's the composite of all-cause mortality, non-fatal MI, and non-fatal stroke. So it's major it's, adverse cardiovascular events, and that's the um, correct pro two tech. I like that O two pro two tech two tech vedadustat versus Darby Poetin Alpha. So that brings us to like our main concern with these drugs of like what are all these other side effects that we don't know about yet, but we'll soon find out once they're FDA approved and we start using them in our patients. Yeah. So the so advantage- just, just a quick summary, two drugs, roxadudistat and vadudistat. And the roxadudistat- What was the first one? Say it one more time. Roxadudistat. It's not roxadudistat? I don't know how many Ds there's. Roxadudistat. No, I'm back out. This one does- yeah, and I just want to be clear. This one does not have a MACE signal. Correct. And this is the one that was uh, better than placebo and as safe as placebo in CKD. So that's one. And then the Vedad, Vedastat, Vadustat? Vedadustat. That has two Ds? <laughs> Vedadustat. That one had the MACE signal. So And so it's interesting because what, what we're seeing, and it'll be, I don't know if these different drugs result in different uh, genes being turned on, but that'll, but we're seeing individual drug differences, not, not a class effect. Right. This is, this is some, so there's some, it's What subtle. I would do is just call them all Dustat, and then there's a, a front part to it. So it's <laughs> Dapro Dustat, um, Vado Roxa Dustat. Okay. Okay. Roxa Dustat. Yeah. So okay. just really get the Dustat down and then you can just add whatever you want to the front. It's, it's, it's like a doo-wop, but it's a Dustat. Paul, I think when we've, I first, I think we've gotten rid of the all the stats. easy to say drugs. I think all the all yeah. the easy to say drug names are. It, it's just getting there's Benlam, yeah, whatever happened to this aspirin, year and you know, like all these. 
Yeah, the ban lamb drug, whatever that is for, I mean, gosh. Okay, let's, uh, so Pascal, for this, for this, we talked about ESAs, we talked about, uh, you know, the benefits of them, we talked about the risks of them for these uh, HIFs, they're, they are oral, right? They're not, they're not IV or subcutaneous. Correct, so that's one of their big advantages, is they're oral, so that will, yeah. And the big downside is we just don't know the safety stuff yet. Yes. We know short-term safety and um, the short-term safety signals seem to be acceptable, um, especially with Roxadostat. But yes, agreed. We don't know anything beyond five, 10 years. Okay. Well- Are we ready to vote? I'm, I'm getting excited. Here. Yeah. So I think let's say that uh, for our patient, um, we, we, we didn't quite have it in us yet. Uh, unless he's going to get enrolled in a clinical st- uh, trial, I think he's, he's stuck with an ESA um, if his hemoglobin drops further. But for right now, after his discussion with Joel, he decided he did not want to take an ESA right now, but we're going to monitor his hemoglobin, his iron studies every one to three months and see how he does. So I think at this point, uh, let's go around uh, from my screen. Um, actually, we'll start with Pascal. Pascal, so for the for the two regions, uh, who would you, or for this region, who would you take for your winner? And you can do that. So there's oral versus IV iron, and then there's the ESAs versus the HIFs. Yeah, definitely an oral fan, oral iron fan. And um, I mean, Nuff Madness is all about what drugs we think will, or what thing will impact nephrology in the coming few years. So I think HIF PHIs are the winners here. Okay. And so you'll pick that over oral iron as your, to take the region? Yes. It has the potential of making a big change in the field. Yeah. Okay. Matt, what about you? Oh, this is, uh, I've been waiting for this. So <laughs> as everyone knows that um, I'm a huge hagfish fan. And so everything goes back to the hag. <laughs> and, um, you know, definitely oral over IV. I think- uh, from looking at the studies, the IV just, you know, it's just not as impactful as it could be. So oral over IV iron, um, I, you know, EPO, you know, even though I love uh, Tour de France and, and cycling, um, they abused it. Uh, we had a rough time with EPO. I'm going to have to pick HIF um, PHIs. However, I know this is going to be very controversial. I'm going to go for the old school oral iron. It hasn't hurt people like the other ones have or potentially could. And I'm very nervous to venture into the anemia land of these eight HIF uh, PHIs at this point. So I'm going to go with oral iron as my winner. All right, Joel, what about you? So I I voted exactly like Pascal. I have oral iron over IV, uh, IV iron in the top of the bracket. I have HIF over ESA in the bottom of the bracket. And I have HIF PHIs winning the bracket and... I have them winning all of Neff Madness. Oh, wow. wow. Look at that. Wait a second. I thought you used IV iron before oral. Didn't you say I that? Do, no, no, no. No, it, I, it's, um, I absolutely do. But I I think in the future, I think these or I'm really impressed with the data on the oral irons. And I just, they, the availability just needs to be there. I think my practice patterns are old and busted. You know, if you've noticed my gray beard, <laughs> it's what I do. But I think in the future we're going to be going to oral iron. I'm, the so data was, the, uh, and I want to just, I want to hand it. Hate that. I want to, I want to hand it to Pascal. What a beautifully written uh, scouting report. This is a great section. Really did a nice job with this. Very nice job. All yeah. right, you guys. So Paul, what do you want to, Paul? What do you want to do? 
Yeah, so I'll tell you, I, historically, I have done so poorly with Neff Madness. I'm going to pull Costanza and go with the opposite of my gut. <laughs> so I think. So that means IV, no gut. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I feel like I probably would have gone with IV versus HIF, um, but I, I think I'm going to reverse that. I, actually, I like orals a lot, and I. I'm gonna, I would have gone with HIF just because I know that nephrologists like the shiny new stuff. So I, I think I'm actually going to go with ESAs, but with oral to take it. So I think I'm going to end up with oral over ESAs with oral to actually take the take the region. Paul, I like you. I would it's nice. I, I would pick IV iron. Uh, I like to I like to cure the patient uh, in the infusion center, and uh, <laughs> I would I would pick HIF over ESAs. I've never been a big fan of the ESAs, um, and I, I I like the shiny new toy. And then I, I think HIF is probably going to go go out of you know take this region, uh, just because it's a shiny new thing, as you said, Paul. Pascal, why don't you give us um, say uh, your the main take home points? What, what our listeners should be taking away from this very very exciting region of death madness? What would you like them to take home? Right. So especially for the audience listening who's um, more into primary care and internal medicine, I think always remember with CKG stage um, three and lower, look for iron deficiency anemia. Oral agents are a great tool to replete um, iron deficiency, but there are some circumstances when IV iron is um, necessary. And actually IV iron is not as scary as um, we once thought it was. ESAs are still um, our current go-to for um, EPO deficiency. And, but remember that they are associated with um, a lot of side effects, um, in fact, and especially in patients with a stroke or history of malignancy or high blood pressure. And finally, I think the thing we're most excited about is the new drugs, um, the HIF-PHIs, which hopefully will prove to be um, a game changer in the field. But again, long-term data is missing and um, it's something we have to keep in mind before we prescribe them. All right, we'll fade that into the outro. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> That's about right. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com, and while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producers for this episode, Stuart Brigham, and to Pascal Kairala for writing the Neff Madness region, which was fantastic. And to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Mad Dog Maddie Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov is on our website, MJ Allen and Jeff Carter are our transcription team, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. That's right, Matt, and a reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.bcul.org. Just head there today and create your account. It couldn't be easier. We should also thank the amazing Stuart Brigham, uh, who is absent right now, but <laughs> uh, is noteworthy for composing our theme music, as well as to the amazing Claire Morgan of Not Early for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.